Welcome to Craft Talk. I am Tzachi Shemish. In this podcast, I will explore different topics. Anything from martial arts, self-defense, trauma recovery, and personal growth. All through the lens of Krav Maga and my experience on the mat, working with thousands of people. In each episode, I will share expert insights, practical tips, and inspiring stories. If you're looking to take a deep dive into the world of self-defense and self-growth, this podcast has something to offer you. Today, I have the honor to host my dear friend Nimrod Astol. Nimrod is a martial artist, a fighter, and a commander in one of the IDF's elite undercover units. He specializes in counter-terrorism. Nimrod is a fifth-degree black belt in Gujuru Karate and trained generations of martial artists. You probably watched some of his students kick ass on the screen while watching Netflix as he trained the fighters of Fauda. Above all, his studio is a safe place for many warriors who suffer from PTSD and his special approach to teaching helps their trauma recovery. Let's get started. Nimrod. Yes. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being here. It's, uh, it's a pleasure having you on the show. How did you get to work with Fauda? Thank you very much for, uh, for inviting me for the show. So uh, Fauda, um, I started the involvement uh, pre-shooting the, the first uh, season uh, during uh, early uh, 2014, even a bit earlier than that. Um, with the uh, early production stages since uh, Lior uh, Raz and uh, the creator, uh, along with uh, Avi Sasparo, um, uh, they're both uh, close friends from uh, from my unit. And uh, Lior and I actually served in the same team for uh, for quite a while. And uh, we go back uh, 30 years back. So it's uh, <laughs> and when he was uh, uh, still working uh, with the pre-production, uh, even uh, before uh, they got the script. Uh, uh, sorry, before they got the, uh, the production company to uh, to support them, uh, he asked me that uh, if they will get it, will I assist them with everything that has to do with the action part, uh, instruction and uh, coordination and uh, doing that. And I said, uh, sure. And then it happened. So <laughs> this is how it started. And uh, this is... Uh... <laughs> you made yourself a, a global name. <laughs> It was not uh, expected <laughs> to me at the beginning. <laughs> a welcome surprise, yes. Yeah, nobody knows who will be the, the winning horse. You just have to like kind of stick with it and see what happens. Sometimes you're lucky to bet on the winning one. And so how was it to work with the team there? Because I know a lot of the yeah. actors were part of the Dubdevan, part of the, the undercover unit, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was uh, very interesting because a few of the actors, uh, as you've mentioned, do have uh, um, uh, the the background, um, uh, and uh, <clears throat> so in that sense, um, some of us were talking uh, in the same language and uh, knew each other and uh, um, how to go along, um, and it was in various parts. Some were um, in the uh, very active acting role, like uh, Leo, Tachi, uh, and uh, and uh, Daniel. Uh, and they're all uh, from the unit. Uh, also, the uh, some of the extras, uh, the the stunts that were uh, playing within the uh, some of the episodes were from the unit and uh, the action coordinator myself, and doing the, so it was like a, a big mixture of uh, of everything, like uh, multi generations <laughs> working there. So, and what was the feel like when you had to modify 
techniques that you know that you know, like as a martial artist you know that like this is the way to go when you have to put it on the on the screen you have to modify a lot of it how was that uh, how was it for you i think um you've touched one of the most interesting points that you know of of, of the challenge uh, how to do uh, something which is professional on one hand and uh, on the other hand to be seen properly with camera work and uh, many times uh, it contradicts because especially in undercover work you do everything in order to conceal in order to hide and uh, if it was so concealed you would not be able to see it with camera so of course you need to play along on 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 both sides and to do uh, uh, something which is uh, uh, which is professional on on one hand and yet uh, visible to the camera so of course you need to make like sort of professional compromises in terms for it to be good on film um and this is uh, the tricky part so you need to know how to improvise properly and to know what you can compromise and what is less desirable to to compromise but then again it is left for uh, you know post production afterwards for editing and god knows what happens then <laughs> so but uh, in those stages you know you really do try to see how you can find the and you know actually those are not the only uh, um, uh, sort of uh, restraints or uh, considerations that uh, you need to take not everybody there is a professional okay right. uh, many people are not uh, <clears throat> and it comes also to the either the delivering uh, end you know somebody who needs to throw a punch a kick or uh, or at the receiving end it could be uh, sort of like a, a civilian or uh, an old person who needs to get like uh, punched or uh, grabbed or uh, whatever and you need to uh, also take care of their safety to see that it is done in the most uh, uh, safe manner possibly because people have their own physical limitations you know and this is like speaking from the martial artist point of view you need to to see how you can uh, teach somebody in a very very uh, short amount of time uh, a skill which is important at least for this particular uh, scene and it does contain a risk and you have very very little time and this is even without considering you know the position of the camera of the lights of uh, of the location itself which could be very hazardous in terms of you know uh, like uh, something sharp coming from the ground or uh, on the wall and You need to because these are all like live location it's not uh, a nice studio <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> you really film in uh, in in a place which is very very similar to the real thing and uh, none of it is safe okay so uh, um, yes many many challenges in in that respect now let me kind of do a little bit of, of the backstory of what got you into martial arts and like how did you become a martial artist And uh, then, like I can fill in the gaps, and for anybody who's listening, I will, I will uh, share a little bit more of my thoughts into it. But I would love to hear what uh, what got you into martial arts, and what kind of styles did you train, um, and maybe share some of the wisdom. Okay, <laughs> so um, you know, go back to early childhood. Um, I, I think that the first thing that ever drew me to to martial arts was the first. Uh, Bruce Lee movie that I saw uh, when I was very, very young. I think it was, you know, sometimes in the uh, mid-70s or uh, something like this. Uh, I think it was, uh, I'm not totally exactly which one, but coming out of the 
a movie theater and uh, me and my younger brother doing all the Bruce Lee uh, movies and uh, story moves and uh, and uh, noises. And I wanted to uh, learn karate. And uh, my mom told me, uh, uh, no, uh, you can do, do judo. And so I will sign up for judo for a couple of years. And uh, I've done a bit of that uh, when I was still like in elementary school. And then I've started to do uh, karate. Uh, style for uh, for a little while, and then uh, a little bit of uh, kung fu, uh, pangai non style, um, and then I started to do uh, krav maga before uh, the military service uh, during my high school years, um, and uh, during the military service, lots of uh, you know krav maga and special uh, uh, close quarter uh, combat training, uh, lotar, and and so forth. Um, after the army, a little bit of uh, Krav Maga again, and then a few years of uh, gaining weight and doing nothing for uh, for a good amount of years uh, until uh, I was like 28 or something like this. And then I've started again uh, karate, uh, Gojo Ryo style, uh, starting white belt and uh, doing it, you know, for myself, uh, just as a, especially, you know, it was a, uh, the, the teaser was a flyer that I had in the mailbox, um, and it was uh, doing offering uh, karate and uh, kung fu, uh, white brain style, and so forth. And it was like a couple of blocks from uh, where I lived with my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. Um, and uh, I come up home with a flyer, and I say, maybe we'll check out this place, and you won't have to call me every time you need to go on the street uh, for uh, you know to to escort you. And she said, to my surprise, if you come with me, I'll go. I said, really? And she said, yeah. So that was like the first time I got back to a dojo um, after uh, quite a few years. And uh, we did it for a while together. I think we found out she was pregnant and then she stopped and I continued. And uh, so I've done uh, the whole uh, process again as uh, you know, as an adult from, uh, from white belt, experiencing martial arts from a completely different angle than, uh, than as a child or uh, an adolescent or a soldier. Um, and uh, it was mainly just for uh, for myself. Uh, <clears throat> I think it was uh, late 2005 that I've uh, opened my own uh, little dojo uh, after I was already uh, a second degree uh, black belt in our side and I um, uh, represented uh, uh, since then until now. Gojoryo Karatedo Kyokai. It's a Gojoryo style organization, and also done along the way Filipino arts, experiencing and getting lots of cold weaponry experience. And I think that the that the passion that I had. Um, you know, it started as a young child and ever since it got, it had many, many variations uh, and, uh, and uh, various forms. I mean, like only now I discover uh, some of those, uh, the one that were more uh, in depth uh, and uh, that really were also, you know, uh, in a way, driving me to uh, either to uh, do it full-time as a profession uh, and to open my own dojo and to do that and 
only now I'm really getting into the bottom of it to myself that it was more than just passion and interest and and so and so forth. And, and do you feel like in a way uh, it's anything to do with your experience and service? Yes, most definitely so. And uh, and and now I'm I can you know on you can only connect the dots <laughs> in right. those perspectives. And uh, in in real time, every time you're like making a, a a decision, which is for you, it's like here or or there. It's something very, very, very drastic, and uh, and it's amazing sometimes to see that you're that you just carry a certain thought pattern, which controls you in a way, and uh, it could be for for better or worse, you know. Uh, but it's uh, or it has its ups and downs along the way, but it's uh, and. I did discover that uh, some of my so-called passion is rooted in my uh, uh, in my military experiences, uh, almost especially to something which is like more uh, a more particular one, you know, uh, uh, to be precise, which uh, did make a drastic shift in in my whole approach uh, for. Uh, for martial arts, <laughs> but only as a byproduct. It was, uh, <clears throat> to, to what I understand now, it was uh, sort of a breaking point in my life, or a point that everything changed, all, all perspective. Do you mind uh, sharing a bit more about the, your service? So many people uh, don't know what, what exactly you do, and, and obviously uh, a lot of people outside of Israel don't really know what uh, Dub Devan is. Um, so you were probably one of the the first uh soldiers to join this unit right like it was like pretty early stages of this unit um in the in, in the early years yes um we're not the, the the first soldiers the first teams but uh most definitely in the in the early years of the of the unit and guided and instructed by the first teams so it was uh um we were um, and um, so the uh, let's put it this way the the mission okay the mission of the unit the mission statement is to uh, target the uh, hardcore uh, terrorism uh, and to <clears throat> let's say uh, nip it in the bud uh, in areas where it is uh, or in ways which be least harmful to the civilian population uh, to arrive in the most uh, unexpected manner to do to target those who are the specific target with minimal uh, casualties uh, or as we say now like collateral damage uh, and to come out as safely as possible and uh, to reach places where uh, that's what a regular military cannot reach because either the price will be too grave, we need to enter too much forces and cause too much civilian damage, uh, or it is just uh, impossible for them to do without uh, the uh, um, the target being, uh, you know, escaping. So, uh, and in order to achieve that goal, um, you need to be very, very creative uh, in every possible way or sense and uh, do whatever is, it is, whatever is possible in order to uh, to get the mission done, uh, we were uh, we usually work against what is called like uh, ticking bombs, 
Uh, it is not something that uh, can always be like uh, prepared for or uh, in advance, even though you do have like operations that are prepared for a long duration, but mostly you're being called immediately to, to do something. And especially during the time that we've served, the pressure was very, very high, very, very intense, uh, either in the uh, um, regular uh, mandatory service as uh, in the early nineties, uh, as the only uh, imagine there was no not so much technology at the time. Like <clears> your body <throat> was the weapon at the time. Your body was the weapon. The intelligence, like you, you were the soldiers were like the one stop shop. Exactly, and uh, <laughs> we were a shop that was open twenty four seven, with uh, you know, uh, not. Uh, um, let's call it uh, not sufficiently staffed or equipped or, uh, you know, you name it. You're just being uh, thrown into the deep ocean after you, you do receive, uh, you know, uh, uh, important training and a uh, serious one. But uh, the intensity of the, of the work uh, is, is crucial and the friction with civilian population and uh, moral dilemmas on a daily basis uh, are uh, very, very intense. And uh, and the pressure to uh, to bring the right results, you know, and because you're on the clock all the time, you, you need to stop <laughs> the the next uh, the next action from from happening. So uh, you're either chasing carriers who just committed something, and then you need to, to catch them or prevent something from happening. So th there, there isn't any time to... Uh... In a way, you're in a front line and, and also the last line, right? Before, as you said, it's a ticking bomb, usually, that you would be uh, going after. So you're the front line of defense, but you're also the last line, because if you, if you miss it, then we have uh, an attack, right? We have an, a terror attack that will hit civilians which in a way puts you, uh, like the army basically tells you, well, you there there's unacceptable damage and there's an acceptable damage, right? Unacceptable damages to civilians. And you as a 19, 20 years old, you are the acceptable damage, right? Like if you get hurt, we can live with that, but not if a, a 19 years old that is not serving, uh, if, if he's hurt, of course not. Now, there, there's a lot of moral problems with that, but. Um, us as, as soldiers, when we put ourselves first in line, um, we don't see that in that age at all, right? Like we see that as a sense of mission and we know that we are protecting there's, there's good and bad and we're doing good by doing things that are uh, extreme. Um, and obviously that comes with a, with a price. Um, and, you know, for many, many years, I used to think about... Uh, people that are uh, walking around with trauma as people that were hurt, right? By hurt by others. Mm -hmm. Only in my kind of like zooming out uh, in a, uh, over a decade after service, I realized, you know what? People that carry trauma can be on the side, like on the inflicting pain side, right? So it's like if we, uh, if something done to us, or if we were forced to do something we didn't want to do, or we wanted to do, but we didn't know what the ramifications of that, because hurting others also can traumatize you, right? And and I wonder what happened to 
I can I can hear the pain in your voice when you're talking about those times. Um, what happened to you and 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 others? When what uh, what was the effect of doing such ex- extreme things with almost unlimited amount of power at the time, uh, and knowing that you're doing something good, right? You're protecting innocent lives. Yeah. Um, the uh, short clinical uh, phrase is uh, moral injury. Um, it is usually an add-on to PTSD, to, to post-trauma. Uh, you can have PTSD without the, um, the element of moral injury. Um, the, the moral injury, as you said, it's, it could be the part that, um, that you're... Okay, the definition of that is that a person um, either is driven or finds himself doing... Uh, things that are against his basic human uh, compass and, uh, you know, uh, um, conscious. And uh, and in a way, PTSD, I would, <laughs> um, it is like post-traumatic stress disorder. And for the first time, I, I found the word disorder very interesting <laughs> um, because it is like because as as human beings, as uh, soldiers, as warriors, you know, you're trained to to cope with with difficult things, and it is not the di- the difficult or the difficult things that are you know as as a standalone. It is the conflicting values that are there all the time. As you said, you you believe that you do something good, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. Right. Okay. I, I know that the, my first mission as a soldier was. To, to stop uh, an imminent threat during uh, our uh, Independence Day was uh, on 1991, okay? And we knew for a fact that there are a couple of uh, terrorists that are uh, heading to uh, um, to commit uh, a terrorist act, and we were supposed to, to stop them. And I remember us uh, with you know, deploying and uh, running uh, in the fields, all dressed black, knowing that we need to uh, uh, go to uh, to have an ambush in a specific uh, location. And there was quite a hike to get there in uh, pretty challenging uh, terrain. And uh, all of a sudden, I hear the, the fireworks. And uh, you see the fireworks um, above the Israeli cities. And you have at this moment no doubt to why you're doing what you're doing now. Right. It is evident. And it does give you a sense of uh, mission and uh, nothing is more important than that at this particular point. You know that these fireworks are, are... up in the air and the celebration is there because you're here and uh, yet you know this action and many others afterwards did come with a price and uh, at the time you don't see the price because you're too young you're too young 
you need to move on to the next mission. There, there is no time to to stop or to digest or to do anything. I mean, like it is what it is, you know. Right. And, and for us, it's a it's a war that goes twenty four seven, and uh, and it's another one and another one and another one. And you know, it's uh, you move from one operation to to the other, and sometimes you there is more than one a day, and in potential you can be called for a, you are prepared for. For a few more, you know, learning specifics and and so forth. So it's uh, so at the time you know that it's the most important thing that you can do. I mean, I, but uh, and me and some of my my friends have continued to do it afterwards during the um, uh, reserve service uh, for many years after that, and you continue to do uh, some of that. <laughs> As you said, extreme, and I would say crazy shit. <laughs> okay, and even when you have a family, when you have uh, a wife, and you have kids, and uh, it is not like in other places that you're being deployed and you're being sent, you know, for three months or uh, six months or uh, whatever. Obviously, it's it's it is horrible for me to, to you know to consider that. One of the things that that drove me into such service was the idea of doing something very significant and stop terror and being, you know, utilizing my Krav Maga training since I, you know, I was trained from a, a very early age. And, um, you know, it's it sold to you in a way that it's, it's doing, uh, you're only doing good, right? But it does, it, but they, they're not, they're not advertising the cost that comes with it, right? The, the things sure. that you need to see, even if you've done absolutely everything right and you only hurt bad people, right? Like, like everything by the book, by the end of the day, there are certain sites that will never leave you, right? And certain things you you had to do, even if it was for a bad person, because once you're, you are a good person, it's very hard to cope with that. Like it's another person, a bad person with bad intent with different values than us that forces us to do something we don't want to do. So it doesn't matter that we're doing good, we're doing good through, through doing bad things, right? And and I, I still agree with that. This work has to be done, right? Like we, we have to do it. Otherwise the price to pay is a lot higher um, and it's not an acceptable damage, right? Like we can't accept that our kids will get uh, killed on the way to school. That's just not... Uh, the way we are uh, we can afford living our lives um but people don't talk about the the, the aftermath right and no. and the military um, especially in the early days like uh, you know 20 30 years ago um i don't know what's going on now but they don't have a support system right so like as you as you said you know like you're from one mission to the other it's it's not about Okay, let's uh, let's just understand what just happened here. 
let's uh, try to cope with that. And this is nobody talks about, you know, processing events that happen, right? It's like you move from one thing to another, um, and then you know you you at some point you just have to count the number of times you say I'm fine, and you know, when how many I'm fines is are I'm not fine, um, and. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of my friends get a little cuckoo um, as time goes by. You know, like you you see that the things come back to them, and 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 the aftermath is usually in a few years after. In in my experience, like to some those who were very present when they were in service, then they immediately get the effect, right? Because you understand what happened. But I, I personally did not understand what's uh, what I'm doing and what's going around me, and I, I was just like full of full of a sense of mission, and that's it, right? So I didn't have that that feeling that I am that I need to question any of the uh, the events or the the actions, and and I still I still support everything I did and and, and asked to be done, but um, there's absolutely no discussion. Nobody helps you figure out like what the hell just happened here. Um, and to me, those things, those thoughts came from, you know, like from a distance, from afar, um, from physical distance and also from a time perspective. So, you know, first time I realized that we as Israelis are different was when I was in Australia and I walked in a, I walked to a mall in Melbourne and and like I'm walking in, nobody stops me for security. <laughs> Nobody's checking my bag. And so I'm going out again. And I'm going in again just to kind of make sure <laughs> that like I didn't miss it. And I was like, oh, you can just go in and out. Like, no, <laughs> nobody is just like stopping you there. It's, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, so I'm like in the restaurant. And the first thing that I <laughs> that I do when I get up is like, I'm looking for, okay, phone, keys, weapon. And I'm like, oh, I don't have my weapon with me. It's like, and I, there's like a second of freak out. And it took me years to stop <laughs> that feeling, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you realize that, like, you're the only one in the restaurant who thinks of his weapon right now. And for most of them, you know, they only seen weapon in the movies. Um, yeah. When you know, when I'm in a place like like Melbourne, right? Like people are completely detached from such reality, right? And but when you, that's all you have. That's all of your reality since since you're a newborn, right? I I remember my my mom was like, well, if you're not gonna it you're not going to be a soldier right so <laughs> you are literally fed you know that military from a very very young age and so you become tougher and like you you learn how to cope with things just by by the nature of of your country right it's a country of ptsd um, yeah. so, so this is why when i think of it uh, of the post-trauma I don't think of it as a disorder as an Israeli because like this, the whole country is in disorder. So that's an order, you know? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's um, true that this disorder is in a way our uh, order. And this is also one of the confusing uh, uh, parts for, uh, uh, for many people to know that they need to receive help because um, for them, this is like the reality. Uh, and if you're not uh, coping, it has to be you. Uh, you're giving up to yourself, you know, uh, <laughs> and you're not being uh, the man that you need to be, or uh, so forth. And uh, and so, but 
what is also important is not only the conflicting values, it's also the, um, you know, it is post-trauma for a reason. Because let, let's say the, the trauma for us, it, it was not like one event. Okay, not for you. I mean, like, uh, unless you take the <laughs> service, you know, it's like, it's like a whole duration. It's, so it's a complex trauma to, to begin with. It's not like just a, a specific event. And why? Also because, uh, okay, so just before we, we go to the, to also to, to the roots of it, um, in the term post, okay, we're already after, so we're missing something, the sense of mission. Okay. And without having this sort of, sense of mission or uh, which and and the the life in the in the real world you know in the uh, in the civilian world are completely different and uh, as i said before everything that uh, keeps you alive or uh, professional out there uh, is very very unacceptable uh, in your uh, civilian life uh, also in terms of your uh, general vibe you know that your your inner frequency. If you cannot be with your uh, family on a regular uh, basis and maintain this uh, frequency of uh, uh, of a warrior or of a team leader, you know it's just uh, um, it brings lots of uh, friction to the to the nuclear family. Yeah, so the this off uh, doesn't serve the the soldier, right? Like not in the mission, and that's something that is not taught. And at the beginning, you do feel that you have those tools because it's what you got. And it's like, uh, and in a way, you're uh, in in many ways to many people and also to yourself, uh, a little bit of a superhuman because you can do way more than average. You can uh, go sleepless for so many nights. You can do, uh, uh, you can bear the load. You can do this, you can do that. But you don't realize that you just, continue doing it all the time even when it is not completely necessary and you don't realize the price that you that everybody around you is paying sometimes when you need to get the job done okay so you, now you're getting into this vibe and uh, nobody can really get it you know you're not even angry and what you do right you become you're just being now uh, motivated but in a more uh, military way and uh, people uh, in the civilian world, don't really appreciate this uh, vibe, this attitude, this this tone, and uh, so it causes many friction. And you, you don't, I mean, like really, nobody helps you to bridge this gap, or even to know that there is a gap, and or that you're off uh, something, but you just may find yourself receiving uh, uh, feedbacks that. Uh, you need like to you feel that you need to minimize yourself all the time because you like you could be too much in too many situations so uh, and uh, and this place of being like missionless if you don't have something that you know a passion a burning passion that takes you forward so i mean like when i was not in in service as as a soldier um i think uh, we were on a PTSD and uh, and, and the post part. Um, okay, the fact that um, it doesn't happen mostly. Okay, during the service, as you say, for uh, unless you're a very like present person. Okay, and uh, then you're uh, more present than you know focused on mission. <laughs> but it's uh, um, true that it is uh, something that usually comes out after uh, for uh, a bunch of reasons. Um, 
And I think that uh, this is where uh, something is, I mean, like, there is a lot of progress uh, nowadays, also in Israel, um, when it comes to uh, um, uh, being more aware and more uh, supportive of, uh, um, of uh, PTSD uh, for uh, combative soldiers, especially from these units. And they do know, they do recognize that there is a problem. Uh, apparently, uh, it's been going on for, uh, for a long time. Um, but uh, uh, there is progress now in the way of uh, receiving a recognition and getting a, a more uh, supportive uh, system. And now you know that what you experienced through a great part of your life as you know, facing alone and as, as your challenge, or you think that this is like something regular that everybody has it, and only you are uh, you're the one that can can get it right. Uh, those are all symptoms, or <laughs> most of them, lots of them. And uh, had you known before, you could have done more about it. Right. Uh, because, uh, but uh, I think that uh, now it is different. Okay, it is more open. People recognize it. I see uh, my sons that are uh, um, that were in uh, service, and I have another one who is in service now. God bless him and save him. It's uh, um, the level of awareness is is way different than during the, our times. Still, there is much to do in, uh, but also not in all of the units <laughs> we're talking about <laughs> in a very specific one. Uh, but and it is the not everybody who needs it uh, gets it uh, at the right uh, at the right time, but there is progress. And um, but I think that there is still lacking of understanding. You know, from my personal journey of uh, uh, becoming aware and uh, you know going through the process of uh, uh, um, diagnosis and everything, you see that the uh, attitude towards a regular. PTSD or combative PTSD uh, is not uh, it's not that different sometimes, okay? And it's it's a problem because it it is different, okay? As you said, there is uh, intent; it didn't just happen to you. And and also within the combative world, there is difference in in terms of uh, you know a regular combat, let's say uh, soldier versus soldier in the in the battlefield, uh, or if you're working within civilian population, uh, okay. If you're working in civilian population as undercover, it's another layer. Um, and when it comes to specific uh, trainings that touch your core, you know, exactly. they need to work very, very deep in order to give you the instincts that will enable you to to function properly uh, at the right time. Uh, but yes, it does come with a with a price uh, afterwards. But you you don't know this price because it, it keeps you alive right here and right now and for many years after that. You have so, this sense uh, of invincible, you know, when you're young, you, like, you know, I remember I never thought that anything will affect me. Like I, I don't feel it. Like, I don't feel pain. I don't feel, you know, like my body heals very quickly. My my mind heals very quickly. I never thought that there would be an accumulation of all these things that and they will knock on the door again, you know, like 10, 15 years later. It's like, well, we didn't forget. Don't worry. Like we're here for you, right? And it's uh, uh, it's accumulation and perspective, because you're not the same person as you were um, twenty years ago. 
Exactly. Once you, you know, if you get married, when you have uh, kids and all of a sudden you're a father and uh, you see things from a completely different perspective. And uh, it's, uh, and also different terms of fatherhood. It's one thing that you have a baby and then when it becomes an adolescent and all of a sudden you remember that some of those people that you were fighting, you know, were about the age of your kids now. Yeah. And you see sometimes, excuse me, kids and everything that are just being, you know, let's say, easily persuade one here or another, easily being dragged to one thing. I mean, like, you can't really blame them for, you know, for, for much because, you know, they're idiots at this age. You know, my, my boy came home with firecrackers one time when he was like an adolescent, you know, and he should know better and this and that. And, you know, but, and, all of a sudden you realize that for some of them, it was just a game, you know, uh, coming back from school and fighting uh, and doing, uh, you know, for us, getting a Molotov cocktail or a rock from, uh, from the top of the Kasbah, it's not a game, you yeah. know, for, for you. It's a life or death situation. And uh, so, and then when your kids reach a certain, um, um, the age where they need to go to service, and they need to make up their uh, mind and, and to choose and to uh, and to go through very similar uh, things that, that you've gone through. And uh, none of this is very pleasant yeah. or or easy. <laughs> I see that in the in the younger generation, and especially you know, I I I'm based in New York City, and and people here in this culture don't have to serve; they they don't have to go through this like the same as as the the, the final. Uh, we have in the Israeli culture that everybody after high school have to go through the military and then, like everybody go travel and then everybody go to university. So there's a funnel that eventually you, everybody go through kind of the same milestones here. Everybody can do whatever they want. And, you know, it may be, you know, like right after high school, they go travel, but who knows how long, maybe they, you know, they go straight to your PhD program or, or like it, it's absolutely different from one person to another, right? So there's less of a sense of a, how would I say that? Like a commitment to um, to a narrative. You can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want. And I noticed that, especially in the younger generation, there's a lot less resilience, right? So now small things, that well, my interpretation, they are small, they they feel they are feeling it like it's very much magnified. It's like it's a lot for them, right? And when 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 they are talking to me about like difficult experiences, I'm saying, what difficult experience are you talking about? I mean, what you told me now in my head, obviously, I'm, I wouldn't say that. But what you just told me seemed to me like a walk in the park, right? That's mm-hmm. that's a good day for me, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, the way they are uh, describing uh, the things that are difficult for them makes me see that it's like it's a completely different perspective in this generation that they feel perhaps the same level of intensity that we felt may, no, I'm not talking in service but I'm talking about other things that were more difficult as as a little bit older people but for things that we would see as as nothing right yeah it's all a matter of of perspective by the end of the day it's all a matter of uh, it's all relative um and yeah. Um, they don't have resilience, right? So this generation, 
um, was raised by basically our generation, right? Like you're a bit older than me, but like I would consider myself your gener- your generation still. Um, yeah. And you know what I try to give to my kids is like I try to make everything better for them, right? But mm-hmm. every day I, I remind myself that if they fall, it's on them to get up. It's not on me to get them, right? And as a teacher, I remind myself also that I cannot solve the problem of my students. I need to sh- just show them the way, right? Because when you steal the problem of your your student or your son and you kind of fix everything overnight and when he wakes up to a way better world, you weaken him, right? Like you you yeah. you weakened him, you make you make him you made him um more unable and the same thing as trauma accumulates, but also weakness accumulates this way, right? Because when you know that you don't have to do anything uh, to get things done, then when your father passes away or no longer able, then what is left of you, right? Yeah. I see, um, I'm fortunate enough to work with so many, many, many different people from different classes, right? So I have uh, had at the studio many people in the past decade that... Um, they have unlimited amount of funds. I'm talking about billions. And some of them, some of those kids raised by really, really wealthy parents, a lot of them are also like very high profile people naturally. Um, you know, when 12, 13 years old, they have a secretary and a driver. And they, they cannot do anything on their own. And you know, I, and I see their moral compass. They have like they have no value to money or to other people's hardship. On the other yeah. hand, some kids um, that are not given all that wealth, like unlimited amount of wealth, um, they have a lot more appreciation also to the other people's pain, right? Because they understand the hardship. Not to say that all the rich people are like that. I do know a lot of uh, other kids. Not, it's it's just less in numbers um, that have a very, very high level of appreciation to everything they have. They understand they're fortunate and, they, and their parents keep reminding them. And usually those are the self-made um, you know, billionaires, sure. that, that parents that made their own money and they came from nothing. I, one of my, uh, my students is a self-made billionaire and he was a taxi driver when he was 20 years old. Right. And, you know, 40 years later, he's doing amazing. <laughs> yeah. So the saying that the, the grandfather drove a, uh, uh, took a bus to work. The son drives a Mercedes. The grandson drives a Ferrari. And his grand-grandson drives a bus again. <laughs> you know, because it's like, it's what you do. It's uh, so first generation is like really in hardship and uh, making, you know, the, uh, building the roots and everything. The, the second son can, you know, the, his son can promote and build a business. The grandson usually is like the one that is, uh, or like a couple of generations after that that are born into wealth or uh, saying unappreciated. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's just uh, all values. I, I think, I think th- this is something that you know was going on even before this generation, uh, and I think there is also like a, an inherent gap between every generation every generation believes that um they're like you know came from a bit more difficult and hardship and those are getting it uh, the youngsters are getting it so much easier and right. so but but you you are correct that this generation is uh, more uh, or seems to be 
entitled more fra- more fragile in in one way uh, more uh, and yet with many inspiration on the other way because like everything is possible okay really everything is is possible and uh, but still sometimes you really need to go through the process in order to to make it happen you need to not everything can be downloaded as an app right now sometimes <laughs> you know you need to uh, whether you really Whether you're really passionate about something you you still have some time that it is difficult and whether it is something that you like to do but it also involves other things that you don't like to do and, and you need to um, to work through it and and do it and uh, so for us yes it does seem that they cannot really uh, hold their grounds and they jump from one thing to another and they're not committed as workers and they are more like self-centered maybe and But on the other hand, you know, they're also driven by a question that because we take sacrifice or suffering as a way of living in a way. We, and for us, it is less than our parents' generation and way less than our grandparents' generation. Those who came from the Holocaust and, you know, I mean, like they had nothing and, you know, to even want something more than to live or to survive is... Uh, You're right. pushing it. Okay, so it's... Yeah, uh, uh, the book and, of Victor Frank, now, The Man's Search for yes, Meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and now you have, like, everything. And uh, you don't... So it's... But on the other hand, they do come with an interesting question. Why suffer? Right. Okay? And sometimes I find myself not being able to, to answer because I see that I carry an extra... Um, justification for uh, suffering then maybe then I should maybe things could be easier maybe things could go better but I think that they also need to be balanced in a way that not everything needs to happen here and now and that easily sometimes it needs to go through stages you know and uh, and trees do take time to grow they don't just uh, you know being planted there and all of a sudden they're rooted and uh, all uh, and give fruit so yeah I, I agree, and I think you know we're but building resilience like you don't you don't build it through just like a very, very easy life, right? Like you build resilience through you know hardship, right and then you you fail and you fail better next time and you do it you know, you, you you get beat up, right and you you learn how to brush it off and move forward without feeling so horrible about uh, about failing because you learn failing is just a part of the process, right? Um, and I think again, this generation is afraid to fail. So there, there's, there are many studies that are fascinating. I can share with you uh, at another time um, to support that, uh, that statement. But um, what really comes to my mind, you know, when, when you talk about this generation, um, and I know that uh, the work that you do with people, um, you know, healing people from trauma and people that go through, Through the battlefield right um is there any different with the so the new soldiers that you're getting now with PTSD versus those you you've gotten like 10 or 15 years ago like that's something that really comes to mind when you talk about this the generational gap what a great question <laughs> um because it really touches something that I I have noticed you know but uh, I think that once you start to peel off the layers okay we all and 
you can reach to an amazing depth of conversation uh, with these generations. And, and I would say, I would take like my generation, I would take guys that are uh, in mid thirties uh, to mid forties, also as, uh, you know, uh, as a group of uh, people. And those who were just, you know, even discharged from the army in their twenties to until uh, early thirties. Because um, I got to work with all these, you know, groups of, uh, uh, with, with teams and individuals coming from, and and you see a difference, a completely different. Uh, and I would like divide it to, to three groups: uh, my generation, which is like completely clueless to the fact that there is such a thing as trauma or post-trauma, and when just you know discovering it and realizing that oh my god, where have I been? How could I? How did I not see? How did I not realize this, this, that? And um, so this is one thing we learn from the younger. Okay, and they because we we see them and we see what is happening to them, and all of a sudden like, we we see stuff that is happening to us. And but if it wasn't for for their awakening, it was harder for us to to notice. Okay, and uh, so the so called like the, the mid generation of uh, of soldiers, I would say around your age and uh, guys uh, maybe slightly younger that that I got to work, with, you see a completely different level of communication of the team or of the individual to begin with completely a completely different level of awareness they they know that there is an issue they know that there is a problem they know uh, to have a discussion which has less cynicism inside and uh, seeing the roles of the guys in the team as they used to be uh, you know back then that this one is this one and this one is that one and you keep the conversation about the uh, uh, Giving each other like a good uh, smacks on the back and uh, be you know doing what guys do. This generation, I mean, like the the, the mid generation, they, they know stuff. They are more aware. They they are more communicative. Uh, it is way easier for them to reach a level of conversation with less uh, macho barriers between them. So I've, I mean, like from what I've noticed and and, and experienced, like. <laughs> Exact years that I'm or uh, data, and the younger ones that I that I got to meet, they already come out to you. Okay, they they search for the uh, for the problem, and and when you hear them talk, you see that they're in a completely different place. They uh, um, their pain is way more uh, evident. And I, I remember if a few guys from from, from my generation that. Uh, um, sort of, uh, let's say, call it like freaked out, or um, like it's not a, it's not the right uh, phrase, but that you can see that they're going through a serious uh, conflict or a struggle right after the service, or in the few years after that. We were in a completely different loop. Some of us, I mean, like we were like go getters and uh, doing, and we got out of the mix, you know. And it was evident to everybody, you know, either becoming ultra religious or either doing uh, doing that and that. So, and I think that in just in in the in the younger generation, the ones especially after Tsukaitan and uh, and so forth, I saw something that was uh, uh, that was different. You see uh, a greater group of people that they already have. Uh, like, 
that they know much about trauma, I think, less about coping with right. trauma. We have coped for many years without even knowing that we have trauma. We, we, we denied it. <laughs> okay, for us, it wasn't trauma. It was light. How can you call this trauma? <laughs> this is what I, you, you don't realize that. Uh, and for them, from the beginning, they said, oh my God, this is, this is, this is uh, wrong. This is, so it's... Uh, and, and in a way, it's good because you don't need to carry this load right. for so many years without knowing, you know? You see, like you're moving it from one side to the other, not knowing that every time you, you bang some, something else, you know, either your knees or your lower back. It's, uh, so, um, so let me ask you this. So it's very evident to me that, you know, you've done a lot of work on yourself through working with others, like being aware of your pain when you're uh, absorbing so many of your students' pain, right? Because you, you know how to recognize it. And when you learn how to recognize their pain, you also know how to find it in yourself. And I can see it like in the in your words and I and I hear it in your voice. So how is it that healing you when you were teaching? Like in what sense do you feel like that helped you? Oh um okay that It's difficult to know. I mean, like, looking back, I can probably, I mean, like, okay, it all depends on the definition of healing. Okay. <laughs> what you would call the um, starting of the healing process. So if you would ask me as a spiritual person that went through something, so that the healing process can be go, can, I can take it to the, so uh, to the traumatizing. Uh, um, event also because I can say that I got shooken up so deeply in a way that ever since the change could not have been avoided. Okay, this is what I realize now. Uh, But so uh, but I wasn't aware at the time Okay, I, I was searching. I knew that I need to find meaning. I knew that I need to find, uh, you know, something touches you on a very, very deep level. I mean, like we cannot go diving into this now specifically, but I, I didn't know what is it that I was searching. For me, it was also a mixture of my way as a martial artist because yeah. you know that there are like roots. And for me, it was the door, the way, the path, uh, the path of a warrior. I didn't, realize how much of it is like rooted in trauma and where in my trainings i was aspiring to to get into what level of proficiency i was uh, dreaming for based on on this traumatic event i didn't know that i was like preparing myself for a for a certain battle <laughs> that was like in my mind over and over and over and i need to find a solution to that right. in a way and uh, I didn't realize it at the time. I can only see it now after accomplishing <laughs> several things and uh, connecting some some dots together. So even though I was in the process of going in the martial arts and believing I'm doing it out of uh, a sense of uh, mission and destiny of education, of thinking that I, I can transfer my tools and my knowledge to a younger generation uh, or to professional soldiers or for children and, and everything because, you know, I have this body of knowledge that I want to share and I feel that now 
this is my mission. And as I said before, um, we need mission, okay? And a sense of purpose. Of uh, And uh, when I was having my civilian life, I didn't really experience that on, on the daily basis. But when I was called to service, you know, as a reserve soldier, then your full-on mission, <laughs> you know, all you are is sense of mission. And then you go back to life. And all of a sudden, everything seems so trivial. Here, you know, you do like the basic things. There you go. You save a life. You don't even you don't even know how many. And then you go back and like, it's nothing. So in my search of finding meaning, I thought that that was like my purpose to, to teach and to do this and to become really good at what I'm doing. So I did. So at this particular point, I say that I was on a path to healing, but in a way, I was still <laughs> living this, let's call it pathology, okay, in a way, uh, because it was fear-driven in a way, only I didn't really know it at the time. And uh, doing the work with Fauda, which was like... Uh, very intense and uh, took me to professional climax in, in every sense of it. Okay, I needed to be on the top of my game in everything to be creative, to go back to my roots as <clears throat> as a team leader and as a as a soldier in the unit, and to go over the script and make it uh, down to earth, you know, professionally and and and, and correct, and yet being able to uh, uh, you know uh, to train the guys and to do it. So I was full into this, and you have all those interactions also with and that was in a way a very serious uh, changing point for me because i cannot go into every, all of it right now it was just uh, insane in a way to go back into uh, uh, like explosion Eric, uh, yes only i was not prepared for it as exposure, as exposure therapy. I didn't even know that I needed any therapy. And only when you get the repercussions of this exposure, and it's like it, it slaps you in the face and punches you in the stomach and kicks you in the nuts on a regular basis. Where have I been? What have I done? How did I not see this? Or how, how did I miss that? And I still know that I've done what I needed to do, how, I, how I've done it. And but still, you see the complexity of the situation. You get the pain and the sorrow of the surrounding of the of the collateral damage. Okay, all of that as a bullet train in yeah. yourself. And uh, and then it contradicts everything that I said. It is like my mission to do to teach it and to, to to be good at it and to educate people to do what? And I have this thought that I build with my bare hands and it is, you know, my, my creation, my mission, my, and all of a sudden it, it, it terrifies me. Right. And uh, so I don't know if this is considered to be a part of the healing process. I mean, like that was a very painful one, but yes, it's part of the healing, you know. I can only say that a few years afterwards I started to, to experience less pain, you know, because of inner work that I've done, to practice martial art in a completely different manner, to to do maybe the same things, but with less stress, with less aggression. Aggression was the main tool that we were taught, you know, I mean, like, I'm sure that you were taught it as well. You know, it's uh, uh, what 
Krav Maga is like, uh, you know, you get this and it's right and you need it. But sometimes, you know, you need to know uh, how to um, regenerate yourself, how to work differently. And so I started to do more and more, um, let's call it uh, healthy fighting. Right. And this is how I, you know, more, that was like the, the birth of my system, uh, which originally started as a practical self-defense uh, with tactical orientation, more focusing on the practicality and technicality and, and natural uh, and uh, fighting abilities and instincts and so forth. And But then I was way, way, way more driven to go deeper inside and to find more and more ways to work with fear and anxiety, not knowing how badly I suffer from them. Because in my mind, I did not have PTSD. I have residues from my uh, from my service, some sediments. And if I feel this pain and this stress and, oh my God, I can't even envy those who do have real PTSD and go through this crazy suffering. So maybe I was fortunate to experience maybe like 10% of it. So I will be able to work well, you with know it and find a tool. You're being, being exactly, you're doing exactly what I was doing as well. Like you're being Israeli and you say, well, you know, I got a 10%. Some people got it more. So like that, that's, that's what comforts me. <laughs> so like, I'm not as bad as others, right? Like if you compare it to the, to the rest of the world who never experienced such, such, uh, events for, for them and for, you know, for anybody who think in a normal way, so like, this is absolutely insane. Right. And, and I can only imagine and the, the things that you are, uh, you have to Kind of cope with you know yeah and and the insanity was i mean like uh, and you know when, when it comes out in in therapy and all of a sudden your therapist gives you like uh, some kind of a feedback to what you've gone through and w w when you thought it was normal okay yeah. because yeah I mean, it's tough i mean but you know we warriors in our team i mean like we don't uh bitch around and we don't uh yeah we just do what you need to do but when you compare yourself also, you know, to the general population, you know, in, in Israel, there was this uh, debate, how many, what is the percentage of the population of that are doing like reserve uh, um, service? And they came out that it was, you know, they came out, it was like 1% really? the population. And then they said, no, no, you're presenting the data wrong. And when they overstretched it, they magnified by by 10, it was 10%, okay? Now 10% are doing the reserve. Out of this 10%, it is inclusive of everything, okay? Logistics and, uh, you know, regular security work. I'm not downgrading anything. Everything is crucially and, and important and everything. The guys who stand at the, at the stopwatch, the guys who are, you know, doing the uh, basic, but uh, the basic uh, routine of, uh, of security. But only think, if you're only talking about 10% and, and the most of it is to support the fighting tip, okay? What a small percentage is actually doing those actions behind enemy lines, right? okay? Going in and coming back to his regular life and doing, and for me, it was normal. This is what I need to do. And this is what happening here. I didn't know that nobody else, <laughs> because for me, it was like my, my, my friends from my team, yes, we meet and we, but, uh, and to carry this along with everything else, you don't realize that you haven't slept for 30 years. Right. Because you start not sleeping as a soldier. 
<laughs> okay, they wake you up. They, and and this is very different from everybody else because you're proud of some of those training because it, it gave you, you know, strength to cope and to do stuff. And uh, uh, and when people say, oh, I haven't slept, I haven't this, okay, you know, but all of a sudden you look and you see that you only sleep, uh, you know, after the service, you know, it was so intense. And even yet that we doze off, you know, in Hebrew we say, Elena Kerr. You know that you know you take some okay, so it's like you pick like this. So um, I would be like you realize that you live your life like a cell phone that you just bought now from the street, and you never really gave it a full battery charge. You just use it all the time, and when you put it in the in the charge, only like you had like five percent at the time, but it's yeah. all the time it like goes, and you. And every time you, you just you run from one socket to uh, to another in order to to plug yourself in because you never know what it's gonna be. I don't know when's the next time I'm gonna sleep. When's the next time that I'm going to eat? What? To eat. So you're like in a constant survival mode. Yeah. If I can sleep now, I will I will fall asleep now. But at night I cannot really sleep because this is when you need to be the most alert. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> everything. <laughs> Uh, so uh, and to find healing from these habits or or instincts, you need also to give yourself a legitimacy to do it, and it's not easy because it was your your strength. And now, how can you loosen up? It means that you need to. So it's like learning and adopting a whole new skill set, which was uh, basically to practice to let go of many many things. You know, even in terms of uh, of uh, working with uh, with pain, with with injuries, and uh, so it's uh, it's it's been a long process of uh, creation without knowing that I'm you know creating. It was like coping. <laughs> Only at the end, it had some. So, what would you um, what advice would you give to the younger audience who listen to us right now? Not necessarily those in service. Um, you know, as a martial artist, as someone who's gone through hardship, if you if you have a chance to be uh, to help you now people who are listening, what's the one thing you would tell them? Wow. Um, what is the general uh, group? Are we talking about people before service, uh, during service, after service? No, not necessarily people who are serving. It can be anywhere around the world. So let's assume that in no service. Just a problem. general, a general uh, life tip. <laughs> yeah, because you know, you, I would, I would want to get a life uh, advice from someone who have uh, gone through through life, you know, and then to live it to the extent extremes. Okay, there is a, uh, a beautiful phrase. Um, Unfortunately, I'm not sure that I'll be able to quote it correctly in uh, in English, um, but it basically means that uh, all heavens and all hells, all gods and all uh, and demons, all of them lie within you. Okay, and uh, I think that if we and for, for me that was. You know, realizing something about my inner space, about you know my 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 core existence was uh, 
was part of that because, you know, you realize that so many are in you. And if you take it, I said before, I'm a bit of, uh, you know, you cannot really go through a process like this all in, I guess, without exploring some spirituality, you know, in one one of its uh, ways because you search, meaning you search for yourself, you search, you search. If everything is within me, I need to choose wisely. Choose what I become, what I choose to become. Uh, I know that if I'm down, I know my, the thought process that brought me there. I know that I can be. So it's choosing wisely my inner frequency, my inner connection to myself, to to God, to, to everything. So, uh, and whilst I knew that all of that is the power of my choice. Okay, it took me to so many places in life, and I saw that every time behind it, I was there. <laughs> you know, in a way, I cannot escape the the presence and and the thought process that led me somewhere. So, if this is what I managed to do, being clueless to what I can, you know, generate with my thought process and thought patterns and and actions. So, had it been more, had I been more aware, and with clear intention, knowing how to work with my anxiety and my, my stress and to be, I can be in a completely different place. And so choosing. <laughs> I agree with you hundred um, percent. We will talk more about this. I have many, many more questions and many more thoughts. And I want to dive more into uh, the therapeutic, therapeutic aspect of uh, what we both do um, and the different approaches we have as we both do the same thing with different kinds of people. Um, I really, really appreciate the time and the amazing stories and amazing advice you have given us. Um, and I look forward to seeing you on the, on the screen again very soon. And, uh, hopefully, um, in a couple of weeks when I visit the homeland, I will, uh, come for coffee. Oh, I'll be very happy to have you here and we can have a great session here at my dojo. And, uh, thank you so much for uh, inviting me and for having me on the show. And, uh, I was uh, deeply uh, moved by by the questions and by the in depth of uh, everything that you've brought to this uh, conversation. And we're doing uh, similar things from uh, both sides of the planet, so uh, it'll be nice to uh, to meet you in uh, in person and uh, and explore some stuff. So, uh, forward. Thank you very much. We'll talk very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.